electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now at last call, short-sighted and greedy. The president of the Steelworkers Union slamming today's U.S. Steel deal. He is here. Red Sea drama sending oil higher. Goldman's top energy watcher will tell you just how high it may go. Amazon reportedly making an even bigger push into sports. What it could mean for watching your local team. A magnificent warning. Could one of the seven big tech stocks fall out of favor with investors? Herb Greenberg is here. Apple on the clock. How a tough ruling on the Apple Watch could take a big bite at a holiday sales. And some Wall Street gurus dishing out their top stock picks for next year. Where is the best place for your hard-earned money? We've got some ideas, an opportunity for you. All that more over the hours. Belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Hi, everybody. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. Great to be back with you. All right. All that ahead. But first up on last call, the holiday rally keeps on rolling. Stocks higher again, hoping to make it an eight week win streak this week. Today, the Dow hitting an all time intraday high on this, the final Monday trading session of the year, believe it or not. The S&P 500 just one percent from its record, about 40 points away. And of course, Big tech up again as well. It was also a big day for several groups of stocks, including consumer discretionary, financials, communications, and the aforementioned technology. But despite the good times, or maybe because of it, you actually may not be participating in the rally and not even know it. That is because many money managers on Wall Street are experiencing something that they have not had in a while. Serious performance, anxiety. In fact, according to Fundstrat's Tom Lee, 65% of large cap fund managers are trailing the S&P 500. The last time that active money managers were so off was about a decade ago. So will now performance chasing and FOMO, fear of missing out, keep pushing stocks higher? And also, how did so many get it so wrong at the start of the year? Let's talk about all this, China, TikTok, and everything else with famed Hedge fund manager Kyle Bass, founder and chief investment officer of Heyman Capital Management. Of course, you know, you love the, I love the fame thing because everybody's like, oh, he's a China hawk. But, you know, I knew you when you were just a lowly bond salesman, my friend, and then started your own hedge fund and made a boatload of money getting some really hard things right. Are you surprised by this massive Fed pivot that we have seen? I'm not surprised by it, Brian. First of all, glad to be here. And every time I see you, it puts a smile on my face. That's a positive thing. Um, Easy, you know, Eunice. I, I think <laughs> when it's Eunice, they just take me off the screen. It's okay. Um, I think I think from the perspective of, um, you know, what's driving the outperformance, and, and more importantly, I think it's the Fed. You know, what the Fed uh, meeting did uh, this just uh, last week was the Fed took took a rate hike off the table this year, added a rate cut next year, 
to make it three coming next year as far as their dot plots are concerned. And, and, and then in 2025, we have another 100, 100 basis points of cuts in the, in the dot plot. So uh, that leaves the Fed funds rate by the end of 25 at 275, which is barely over their inflation target. So basically, the Fed was asked to victory lap, meaning the Biden administration has been pushing Powell to, to announce that he has uh, uh, a tamed the inflation dragon and start talking about cutting. And, you know, the Fed is, has uh, ever since uh, uh, Wednesday happened, the Fed has tried to bring out the, some a few doves and say, oh, that's not really what we meant. They're trying to, uh, you know, back backtrack on on what was done on Wednesday. But Brian, it's kind of hard to put that that genie back in the bottle again. It's just interesting to me that we've had all these hyper aggressive rate hikes, some of the most aggressive, fast paced rate hikes to counter you know, inflation in decades, at least since the late 70s, early 1980s. And now within a few months, we're already talking about going the opposite direction. Yeah, I mean, the political economy has a lot to do with this, Brian. Uh, we're entering an election year. What? Uh, and when you think about you think about the academic elite that sit on top of the Fed, you know, look at what their expectations were for inflation in January of 2022. Uh, you know, four and a half percent real GDP, two and a half percent inflation, and in in just a couple years time, you've got uh, the the NAHB housing index is up 47 percent. Um, the average price of a soda is up 42 percent. The average price of milk's up 40 percent. They put 40% more money in the economy, and now somehow we're victory lapping, slapping each other five, saying that we've got inflation under control after they wrecked it on the way in and went too big. And now, as you say, they've hiked almost 600 basis points in such a short period of time, um, they're causing some disruption in the marketplace. And you look at what's happened to emerging markets, uh, and whether you're looking from South America to the Middle East or abroad, uh, we have destroyed emerging markets. So one of the benefits of these rate hikes has been now we have the most liquid, deepest capital markets mm -hmm. in the world. We also have the highest uh, interest rates on the front end of any developed market. So we've attracted a ton of capital to the United States because it is the best place to invest. Uh, but a lot of that global capital has come here, even though the Fed's trying to pull capital out of the market. Well, I think they're, they're congratulating themselves, patting each other sort of on the back, but you know, the American consumer knows that the price of a burger and a fries and a drink, which was eight bucks, now is 20, is not going back to eight bucks. They're still annoyed. So you can tell them the rate of inflation is down, but if you tell them inflation is down, they're going to laugh in your face because they are the ones that actually pay the bills. I mean, that said, do you think they could be that aggressive on the rate cut side next year? To your point, there is this, this small matter of an election, I'm told. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, not I think, to politicize the Fed or anything. Where's my tinfoil hat? Brenner somewhere. Uh, I mean, you know what? You can say that that people aren't political, but you can you can also see it in the manner in which they speak and the manner in which they talk uh, about about certain things. Uh, but again, not trying to politicize the entire Fed other than, you know, we have uh, we, we look at who the two front runners are. And, and we know uh, in D.C. there are only two kinds of people. Uh, there are never Trumpers and they're Democrats. And so with Trump leading, uh, I can tell you that that the political economy is going to suggest that we need some some rate cuts yeah. because the Biden administration 
uh, since they took the helm, has been presiding over the largest inflation uh, in in our lifetimes uh, in 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 actual terms. Not well, in our- but Kyle, a lot of that spending, that COVID spending, which is done by Congress and the former president as well in 2020. I don't oh, think yeah. we can I mean, lay look, it all at the feet of the current guy, the former guy also uh, involved. Yeah, I mean, I guess MMT's real, Brian, and, and you can create a soft landing. You can spend $6 trillion on only $4 trillion of revenues. You can run the, one of the largest uh, uh, d- budget deficits in the history of, of our country uh, while you're at full employment and mm-hmm. everything's just going to be fine. I mean, I'm just telling you it's not going to be fine. Uh, and maybe they haven't tamed the inflation dragon properly, properly, or maybe uh, we're going to see some weakness in the markets. But, you know, there is no such thing as Goldilocks once you've yeah. created an enormous inflation over a short period of time. And, Again, uh, well, I was going to say, Kyle, I was going to start to jump in. Spending. Oh, oh, two more things I want to get to, but I want to get to the TikTok thing in a second. But I, I do want to follow up. You know, people, you, they come at you or me and say, well, the Fed's apolitical. First off, I personally, I don't believe anything in D.C. is apolitical. It's a, it's whatever side you're on. That's the that's the industry. D.C. is just a, basically an, a, the largest company in the world. And we had, you know, a Fed, a Fed chair or a Fed member, Leo Brainerd, go and join the Biden White House. So I think if you thought that the Fed was overall completely apolitical, the fact that one of the most powerful people, the vice chair of the Federal Reserve, went ahead and now is the head of the National Economic Council in the White House should be kind of all you need to know. Yeah. And again, uh, look, in D.C., there are never Trumpers and they're Democrats. Uh, I'm not a Trump. I'm not a Trump voter, Brian. I'm not here advocating uh, for President Trump. Uh, I'm just telling you that the practical reality of the situation is there are only two kinds of people in D.C. uh, And the Fed happens to be headquartered there uh, and the Eccles building. So, I, you know, I think we got to it's a it's a tough it's a tough uh, um, argument to have to say that you're completely apolitical if you're an institution like that. And remember, Lael Brainerd actually made a donation to the Hillary Clinton campaign when she was at the Fed. So, I mean, yeah, I, your, your point's well taken. Yeah, and it's all public stuff. I mean, everybody can make up their own mind on it as well. Before we go, you had an interesting thought. You have a lot of interesting thoughts on TikTok and its algorithm. You've been critical of them, obviously, in the past, but they, they made some tweaks to the algorithm back in October or because of October 7th? What have you learned and what are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, I participated, you know, the Yale, Yale Management School, uh, kind of uh, the, with the CEO conference that's run once a year by, by Jeff Sonnenfeld. It's one of the best conferences uh, that, that, that I've ever seen uh, can, can, with the convening power and what goes on there. And uh, 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 Professor Sonnenfeld had uh, some data scientists mining uh, the data of what happened on October 7th with the algorithm with pro-Israel versus pro-Palestinian content. And the data scientist uh, at the conference uh, said that the, the pro-Palestinian content on October 7th went 54 to 1 against pro-Israeli content on TikTok. TikTok. Now, we know TikTok is owned by ByteDance. We know that um, that China is definitely an adversary, potential, potentially a a governmental enemy of the U.S. government. Uh, and here we have TikTok broadcasting into our kids' bedrooms without an FTC license, and they can tweak the algorithm to actually change the manner in which young Americans think. Um, it is, uh, it's absolutely unconscionable that we allow this as a country. And one of these days, we're going to stop it. 
The fact that it went 54 to one, and then the data scientists said, yeah, but Instagram only went 15 to one, and that's somehow better, um, means we're so far off from where we need to be in the regulatory marketplace as a country, yeah. protecting our national security from foreign enemies and affording foreign enemies kind of data battlefield asymmetries that we just shouldn't be affording them. One of these days has got to stop. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Everybody comes after Musk and X, and there's some reason to, obviously, but the amount of attention it gets is so outsized compared to the reach of TikTok and the fact that we have no idea how any of it works. That's coming from the Yale School. Jeff Sonnefeld, a friend of ours, great conference as well. Kyle Bass, really fascinating stuff. Thank you very much for coming on, my man. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Brian. All right, so we gave you the macro markets, folks. Let's get into your stud and dud of the day. The big winner of the day was Etsy, up nearly 5% after a bounce back after last week's big sell-off. VF Corp, by the way, the big decliner. They own Vans, North Face, a bunch of brands you know. They got hacked, and they may have trouble making certain types of sales. All right, so let's take a quick look at the futures as well. They are slightly down, but again, very thinly traded at the south. All right, up next, a magnificent warning. Is one of the big seven tech stocks at risk of falling at a favor? Plus, one of America's oldest and most storied companies sold to Japan. And now many American steelworkers are worried about their jobs. The president of the United Steelworkers Union joins us next. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. All right, now to tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the headlines that you and Wall Street will be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, some Tesla news crossing the tape. The company planning to raise hourly employee wages at its Nevada Gigafactory by 10%. That move could, or could not, lessen the likelihood that employees at the plant try to unionize. Changes are set to go into effect right after the new year. Next up, potential challenge to EV tax credits. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin is urging Congress to reverse the Treasury Department's guidance on EV credits. Manchin is aiming to override the credits through the Congressional Review Act, but it's still unclear whether or not Congress would be able to do do that in the first place. Manchin says the Treasury Department's current guidance will make it easier for Chinese companies to take advantage of those credits. EV tax rules are set to go into effect also at the beginning of the year. In the meantime, a shock deal that could send shock waves through America's heartland. U.S. Steel agreeing to be sold to Japan's Nippon Steel. U.S. Steel is more than 120 years old. It was founded by giants J.P. Morgan and Andrew Carnegie. The company Steel has been used to build many of America's best-known buildings and landmarks, from bridges in San Francisco to the Flatiron Building in New York and even Chicago's Sears Tower. In the 1980s and 1990s, U.S. Steel began to move a little bit away from just making steel 
didn't go so well. The company ended up being dumped from the Dow in 1991. And today, Nippon Steel of Japan says it will buy U.S. steel for $55 per share or about $14.1 billion. Obviously, U.S. steel stock surged today, but not everybody is happy. United Steelworkers Union President David McCall speaking out, calling this deal, quote, greedy and short-sighted. It says the union worked to keep U.S. steel domestically owned. Joining us now is United Steelworkers Union International President David McCall. Uh, Mr. McCall, thank you very much for coming on CNBC and Last Call. Uh, We appreciate it. We did a lot extensively with the UAW as well. Now you're here. Can you take us through some of the steps that you and the the, the Steelworkers Union did to try to keep U.S. Steel a U.S. company? Good evening, Brian. Look, uh, we've reached out to U.S. Steel. We've reached out to others about uh, this whole deal since it was announced uh, several months ago uh, that Cleveland Cliffs had, had put in a bid for the company. U.S. Steel's completely ignored us hasn't talked to us, that we have the same concerns with Nippon today. They would get a phone call at six o'clock this morning telling us that the U.S. Steel had had decided they were going to sell the Nippon. Uh, and, and we're really afraid that Nippon's got no better issues than what U.S. Steel is in terms of broken promises. They didn't reach out to us to discuss the deal. We have no idea. You know, part of our successorship agreement says that any purchaser has to uh, abide by all our labor agreements and more. And and yet, we don't even know what agreements U.S. Steel may or may not have given to them. We haven't, haven't uh, we got issues about regulatory issues mm-hmm. around the control group for our pensions and our retiree health care. So Nippon, from our perspective, is no better than U.S. Steel in terms of broken promises these days. U.S. Steel is, you know, over the last... Uh, five years. They've eliminated 5,000 jobs. They've eliminated millions of tons of steelmaking capacity. And today, a representative from Nippon and the U.S. Steel call uh, said that he believed that the U.S. Steel uh, plan uh, would be to shift more product uh, to their non-union facilities, and they were going to continue that. So obviously, we're not going to support that kind of deal. And uh, and at the end of the day, there might be a lot of people today celebrating uh, the stock price, but that's not what our measurement yeah. is. Our measurement for our, our union and for our members and our retirees is whether or not an owner is willing to invest in, in the facilities, uh, w- willing to commit to the long-term future of those facilities of steel-making jobs here in America. And for us, that's the real test and the real importance. Well, David, is it, is, it, is, it, is it possible, though, is it possible that Nippon Steel comes in and, you know, this this is not this is a country that is extremely allied with the United States in Japan. They're an energy ally. They're, there's a lot of connections there between the two. Is there a scenario where they, they do come in and they reinvest and maybe add to U.S. steel and union jobs? Well, they haven't indicated that to us. And, and by past practice, they actually have a joint venture with ArcelorMittal here in the in the U.S., and they certainly haven't lived up to the agreements that they promised before that. So uh, their track record with us isn't very good. And obviously, them ignoring us throughout this whole process, uh, they're going to find that uh, just saying that they're going to buy it is not uh, is not going to work for us. I got, We've got I, certain corporate uh, guarantees within the collective bargaining agreement, and we're going to utilize them. I got, a, I got a statement from, from Nippon Steel. NSC is how they kind of refer to themselves. Nippon Steel Corporation saying that they, 
They have the basically the, the, the resources and the desire, their term, to honor the BLA, the Basic Labor Agreement. Do you do you believe that? I have no reason to believe it. Uh, I don't know what agreements they have. I don't know what their knowledge is about our basic labor agreement, our pension agreements, our other agreements that protect our retiree health care. They haven't reached out to us and talked to us. And, and frankly, as I said, our past experience with Nippon is not all that positive. Does the USW have the right to veto any deal here? I, I don't fully understand all the mechanisms of the voting. I, you forgive me on that, Mr. McCall. It is It can be very complicated. What power would the USW have here? There is a, it is a complicated process in terms of our right to bid and in terms of our successorship language uh, that is somewhat complex, but we believe that uh, it can be vetoed if they can't live up to the commitments and the agreements or the financial welfare all that they have to in order to reach agreement with us. Sounds like the fight may just be beginning. I think it started this morning at 6 o'clock. Well, David McCall, United Steelworkers Union. Mr. McCall, we appreciate you coming on CNBC Last Call. Thank you. Thank you. All right. On deck, terror on the water. How one of the world's most important areas for oil now has oil tankers at risk and going the long way around. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. Ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Oil prices popping a bit today after more attacks from Iran-backed fighters out of Yemen, making ships avoid areas around the Red Sea. The U.S. and several allies have agreed to form a naval task force to try to better safeguard the area. The Red Sea is a vital trade route for oil and the global supply chain. It connects the Suez Canal to the Gulf of Aden and then the Arabian Sea. Now, if ships do not feel safe going that way, they will likely have to go all the way around the tip of Africa, adding about 3,000 nautical miles and huge extra costs to their shipments. This all happening as oil prices have declined lately and sent some of the once hot oil stocks down with them. So how does this all play out? Joining us now is Goldman Sachs Managing Director and Head of America's Natural Resources Equity Research, Neil Mehta. Neil, uh, great to see you, and I look forward to seeing you in person in less than a month at your amazing conference coming up in Florida. Uh, listen, I know you're not like, you know, the, the, the Red Sea shipping expert, but I've got to imagine that what's going on with these increased attacks has got to be on you and your team's radar. Yeah, th- thanks, Brian, and good evening, and really looking forward to seeing you as well in, in Miami in a few weeks. On geopolitics and the Red Sea, it's certainly something we're watching, Brian. As a rule of thumb, 12% of uh, seabor- seaborne oil flows go through Red Sea checkpoints, about 8% of the global gas market uh, in the first half of 2023. That said, as you said, there's an alternative uh, route to move cargo south through the Cape of Good Hope. This adds about 40% to the traffic time, so 10 to 14 days of traffic. But big picture, Brian, we believe all roads lead us to $80 Brent in 2024 and 2025 on average. At $80 Brent, you got a price that's Pareto optimal. 
where Saudi could get close to balancing its budget. U.S. producers can earn a good return of capital. And you, as you said, you take into account a geopolitical risk premium for Russia, the Middle East, and so on. The price in the low 70s, which we saw last week, in our view, just doesn't get, get it uh, done. But at the same time, it's hard to see the price spike with the amount of OPEC spare capacity that exists in the market. So all roads lead us to $80 Brent for the next several years. And that's what we continue to assume in our model as we have over the course. And, of and we're on, on Brent, we're about 78. So you maybe you see a couple of bucks worth of upside. I'm sure it'd be the same because WTI tends to follow it. Right now, you got a couple of, you know, Yemeni missiles and rockets that are going. It's scary, but it's kind of one off here, one off there. We're sending in the military to try to quell this. But, Neil, what if we were to see, like Iran has done in the past, mines being put in the Persian Gulf or this escalate to involve something with, you know, UAE or Saudi or Kuwaiti or even Iranian exports? Then what? Yeah, I think at any time we're forecasting oil, we have to make sure that we're not forecasting world peace. In other words, you have to assume some geopolitical risk premium that is, exists and is embedded in the curve. And Brian, when we look at December 2025 contracts, which have been hanging around $75 Brent, seems too low. And uh, as we work our way through 2024 and 25, we start to work down OPEC spare capacity. And that's when you have to, once again, reprice geopolitics into the curve. So whether it's Iran, whether it's Russia or, or elsewhere, we've got to make sure that we take into, sort of, into account that geopolitical risk premium, which again, brings us back to an $80 view of mid-cycle. Yeah. And are there companies out there in your coverage universe, Neil, that will benefit not just from oil, which you focus on, but also natural gas? I know a name that you guys have liked for a while is like a Baker Hughes. And pretty much every LNG provider I talk to on or off the record seems to be doing business with them. Yeah. Baker Hughes has got dominant market share. Uh, We have a multi-year LNG spending cycle ahead. Baker Hughes uh, is in almost every one of those FIDs, or large project construction sets. When we think about the global gas complex, our mid-cycle view of U.S. natural gas, which right now is trading around $2.50 an MMBTU, is $3.50. And so we think that there could be upside over the next couple of years. In the near term, weather is mild. In the near term, U.S. production is elevated. uh, But over the medium term, there's upside to to spot prices. A high-quality producer like EQT also gives us leverage to that story. And so we do think natural gas plays a role in a portfolio. You'll hear more about that from some of the companies when you come down to Miami. But it plays a role in in the portfolio, EQT and Baker Hughes being two stocks with leverage. Also, the original original Fang, Diamondback Energy, I know you guys have been positive on, as well as ConocoPhillips. Two very different companies, though. Yeah, and they're both low-cost producers. Uh, In an $80 world, we're not looking for beta. We're looking for quality. So if you take a look at ConocoPhillips, they're generating around a 10% free cash flow yield. Did some terrific deals towards the bottom of the cycle, whether it was the Shell transaction or the Concha transaction. And so that M&A is accreted to the best return on capital employed in the E&P space. Diamondback is just a low-cost producer run mm-hmm. by an expert CEO in Travis. And he is uh, ensuring quarter in, quarter out that they are able to generate that outsized free cash flow. It's the same story in Canada, where we're pitching Canadian natural resources, 12% free cash flow yield, the low-cost producer. The advantage of of recommending low-cost producers or investing low-cost producers is allows you to get protection on the downside 
with good business models while capturing all the optionality of a higher commodity price to the extent it materializes. I did not have Canadian oil and gas on my bingo card, but you brought it. Neil May to Goldman Sachs. We appreciate it, Neil. Thank you. Yeah, Brian. All right. Speaking of, we are going to be live from the Energy Clean Tech Utilities Conference in Miami on January 4th. We've got Chevron CEO Mike Worth. We've got Goldman Sachs' head of oil research, Dan Stroyman, as well as a cast of thousands, some surprises. It'll be good. Also, a little closer to home, quick programming note. After pausing container shipments through the Red Sea, Maersk's CEO will be on CNBC tomorrow, 11 a.m. Eastern time. That'll be interesting. All right. Coming up, buy toilet paper and watch touchdowns. Maybe at the same time. It could happen. We're going to tell you how next. All right, welcome back. Could Coach Prime soon be on Prime in prime time? He might. Because according to the Wall Street Journal, Amazon is in talks to invest in Diamond Sports Group. Diamond is the big regional sports programmer that filed for bankruptcy earlier this year. Paper says both sides are reportedly negotiating a strategic investment and a multi-year streaming partnership. This would be a big deal because Diamond Sports carries the games of more than 40 major sports teams across America. Let's bring in Tom Rogers, first president of NBC Cable, founder of this network and currently editor-at-large at Newsweek on what this could mean. Tom, I mean, this is not Amazon deciding they're going to, you know, throw up a Thursday night football game a couple times a year. This is This is like them fully becoming an ESPN competitor, I think. Well, Brian, it could be a very big deal. But remember, this is in bankruptcy court and bankruptcy court is a very unpredictable forum. It's uh, very different than most court proceedings. It's kind of like the Wild West. So uh, we'll see. Um, Diamond Sports was facing liquidation uh, after uh, next year. It was uh, widely assumed that Diamond Sports and all these regional sports contracts for these 40 teams would go away. And obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, a partnership with Amazon would uh, potentially uh, preserve that business. Uh, all those 40 local teams are highly dependent on the revenue that comes from these uh, local regional sports contracts. So if Amazon were to come in and preserve an awful lot of the economics that those teams have negotiated for in these contracts, uh, that would be a big deal for the economics of a lot of basketball, baseball, and, and hockey teams. This is all about what cord cutting has done to uh, the cable bundle and the regional sports channels being the most expensive part of the cable bundle has uh, really put these channels in jeopardy. And the question is, what is regional sports going to look like in the streaming era? Well, I think it also, Tom, and correct me if I'm wrong, sort of heralds maybe the the beginning of the end of the old ownership, right? The Disney's of the world, maybe the Comcast, our parent company of the world, and these trillion-dollar corporations, because as successful as Disney and Comcast and a few others may be, Amazon, Apple, Google, they're on a completely different level. Well, I wouldn't write that obituary too quickly. Remember, this is about what happens to preserve uh, local sports with these leagues. The national packages are still very much alive. Uh, the legacy media companies that you mentioned are very interested in, for instance, uh, the NBA package that will be negotiated uh, starting next spring. 
Um, Amazon's role here may be helpful for that. The NBA has uh, uh, indicated that they may have interest in these national deals having some kind of a hybrid nature to them in mm -hmm. terms of the streaming era, where they're both uh, national games and they're aggregating all these local games from the regional sports world and putting them into the streaming package, maybe at a higher price tier or something like that. I don't think anything will happen here uh, that uh, the leagues are not uh, happy with. I would think, for instance, uh, the NBA on the one hand may say, look, we don't we don't need diamond sports in the middle of our, our future. Uh, the, their involvement going away would be a clean way for us to uh, reconstitute what a national package looks like in the streaming era going forward. On the other hand, they may say, hey, Amazon coming in here, stabilizing the local regional sports business may be a way to build the foundation of strength around local yeah. sports allows them to put all the local games together more easily into a national package. So there's a lot in flux here. I doubt these conversations are really at a mature stage. There's so many variables that can play out in bankruptcy court. But the one thing that's clear, as you said, Amazon is going to be a bigger player in TV sports, is going to be a bigger player in TV advertising. It's already indicating it's bringing advertising to yeah. prime video and all its entertainment programming. So it's going to be a big TV player. Big, big player in a lot of aspects of many of our lives. Tom Rogers, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Brian. All right. Always welcome. Next up, Amazon, of course, one of the seven stocks known as the Magnificent Seven for their amazing run lately. Thanks. Thanks for but having me. But if you think you can just buy these stocks and then sit on them for the long run, you may be wrong. Because your next guest warns that investing in the Mag7 is like storing perishable goods. They may only be good for so long. Joining us now to explain is CNBC contributor Herb Greenberg, also the author of the Substack newsletter on the street, with Herb Greenberg, are you saying that Amazon is imminently going bankrupt? Oh, no, I'm not saying I anything know. like that. I just that, wanted but, to start it off I, hot. I, of course you did. Um, look, if you go back and you look back 20 years, and this is something I did in, in something I wrote over the weekend, um, and you look at who was there 20 years ago in the MAG-7 of that day, there was just one that's still there today, and that's Microsoft. That's the one that lived up to its expectations and its hype, but that's also after a long time and a long period of people saying it had been counted out. And what really got me thinking about this, Brian, was I was listening to a podcast, probably the very last one broadcast with Charlie Munger. And it was by the interviewer was John Collision, who's the co-founder of, 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 um, of Stripe. And Munger said something interesting. He talked quite a bit about parish risk. He was talking about big brands, consumer brands that he think will go away. But he also talked about companies, companies that just disappear. And that got me thinking about the whole concept of this MAG-7. And when you look at the list and you look at how it's transformed over every decade and you look at who's there today and you say to yourself, OK, who will be there 10 years from now? Who will be there 20 years from now? And I want to say, OK, you tell me what's going to happen to AI if indeed that's the theme that follows through. And we might get a little clue, because if you look at the top of the list right now, you have Apple, which, interestingly enough, Apple wasn't there 20 years ago. They were way down the line and down the list. So you think there's going to be someone we don't even think of today. So you look yeah. at the list and who's vulnerable. Well, well I'll tell you something. Go, yeah, tell me, who do you think go. of the, at that list, 
Who would be the most? I know who I would pick. I won't say it just because it's not well, right for me to do so. But who would you pick? Well, you can say this never stopped you before. You, if you looked at, uh, if you look at, if you look at the list, the very bottom of the list, Nvidia, I would think is is kind of vulnerable only because of the potential competition, especially as we see if some people believe we're in a a decade for chip, a bullish decade for chips because computers are so underpowered and we have so much AI going on. You know, you have Intel, AMD, and others that are trying to battle and get, you know, regain themselves. And who's to say Intel, I'm not going to say it's going to be on the list, but it doesn't get itself back to a portion of stature at some point. Intel, like, listen, you, I don't know what your, Herb, I don't know what your MAG 7 was from 20 years ago. I'll take a guess, right? I, you know, and by the way, read your Substack piece. I was a little bit busy with some family medical stuff over the weekend, so forgive me. We could throw a Cisco, Intel, right? They were probably on the General MAG 7. General Electric was at the top. General Electric G- could do no wrong. Dell, Pfizer. Dell, dude, you're getting a this? Dell, right? How about Pfizer? Pfizer, people forget, was one of the considered one of the greatest companies back in the time. So well run. But let me bring one thing up right now. I'm going to go to Tesla, bottom of the list of the Mag 7. Who knows what's going to happen? And for all we know, we could really be at peak Musk right now. But then I start thinking, what happens if U.S. Steel, if that deal goes through and X becomes available? Does Musk then change the name of Tesla, the symbol of Tesla to X? Does he does he get the, go through that transition? And does that become the umbrella for something that has potential? I have no idea, but it's worth throwing out there. I, You know what? That's why we love having you on. I t- U.S. Steel's ticker is the letter X. If it goes maybe. away, maybe X go, Tesla becomes X, Twitter X becomes Public X, maybe they merge. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I'm done. I'm done with Musk. Yeah. But you know what? We'll he may not be done with me. That's <laughs> we never. <laughs> neither are we. Herb Greenberg. Thank you, folks. Sure. Which which of those seven do you think is the most vulnerable ten years from now? Love to hear your view. All right. Time now for our quicker than the ticker. All the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put sixty seconds on the clock. Nikola founder Trevor Milton sentenced to four years in prison for defrauding investors with the EV truck maker. He was found guilty in October 22 on two counts of wire fraud and one count of securities fraud. He was also fined a million dollars. A cyber attack that could impact some of your holiday orders. VF Corp, parent company behind Vans, The North Face, and more, reported they were hacked. The company says the scope of the attack is still unknown, but it will have a material impact until recovery efforts are complete. The Powerball hitting $543 million, and this is the fourth Powerball jackpot at more than a half a billion this year. The drawing tonight, 10.59 p.m. Eastern, your odds, 1 in 292.2 million. A dress worn by Princess Diana just sold for a little over a million dollars, 11 times its estimate at according to L.A.-based Julian's Auctions. The dress was first worn by Princess Di in 1985. U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers found $10 million worth of meth and cocaine in vats of jalapeno paste. Wow. All right, after the break, we're going to give you Barron's top 10 stocks for next year. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about banks, because the Federal Reserve has indicated there could be rate cuts down the line and interest rates have fallen. Bank stocks have soared. But I don't mean just the biggest banks out there. I mean, a lot of the regional banks you may not know about unless you live in those areas have absolutely soared. Let's dive in with somebody who knows who's forgotten more about the regional banks than most of us have ever known. And that is Menden Capital Advisors, president and CIO, 
Anton Schutz joining us now for Last Call. Been able to identify, by the way, Anton, a lot of companies you have that have ultimately gotten bought at a nice premium. First and foremost, uh, what do you make of this run the last couple of weeks for the regional banks all on an interest rate shift? It's insane. Yeah, it's. I mean, this year has been wild, right? If you think about the, the large failures in the spring, the meltdown of the bank stocks, the giant rally in July, the big sell-off in you know August, September, and here we go again, big rally. But you know what's changed is interest rates have changed, right? The trajectory has gone down. The economy has slowed down. The Fed is now longer no longer talking about raising rates. Uh, and, you know, people are look higher rates really endanger companies, right? They endanger economic activity. They endanger bank balance sheets. You know, banks were the buyer of U.S. treasuries. And then they got punished for owning them by rates going up a lot. They got a lot of favorable accounting treatment for that. And obviously some bought too many and some didn't have the proper deposits to own them. But at the end of the day, their balance sheets were threatened by higher rates. And the consumers are threatened by higher rates. You can already see that happen out there. Mm -hmm. Lower rates are helpful. Certainly the mortgage business has been dead. Uh, obviously, lower mortgage rates are good for the consumer and, and certainly good for mortgage activity, which helps the banks. And at the end of the day, any of those companies that need to refinance, whether it's consumers or commercial real estate, higher rates are toxic. So lower rates are incredibly helpful and obviously helps reduce the, the risk of uh, any sort of credit out there you know, against the banking system. Yeah. And one thing you do best is you kind of scour the U.S. for these regional banks that are based in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and I think Shreveport, Louisiana. We'll get to those in a second. But tell us about uh, Wichita, Kansas-based equity bank shares. You know, what I really like is management has a lot of skin in the game. And the CEO, Brad Elliott, has a lot of skin in the game. And he's been a consolidator. And this is a great environment for anybody that's a proven consolidator because there's lots of small companies out there that need help, whether they have a technology deficit whether they have a balance sheet that's rich in deposits and, you know, unfortunately full of uh, treasury securities. You know, a lot of those companies, unfortunately, need to seek stronger partners. And those deals are really good for Brad shareholders. So this is a really good time for those types of transactions to happen. And, you know, Brad's in a sweet spot. Announced the transaction just a few weeks ago. And you can see the, the stock move, you know, on the day of that announcement. I suspect that he's got other ones up his sleeve down the road. Is that a similar story for First Bank shares? That's the the Hattiesburg, Mississippi bank that I mentioned. Similar type of, you know, they have a lot of skin in the game, or is this a different model? Oh no, there's a lot of skin in the game. Uh, you know, the CEO Hoppy Cole has uh, certainly quite a bit of stock. Um, he's done lots of acquisitions. He's really built this bank. And what's really interesting, even though they're they're headquartered in Hattiesburg, they happen to have a third of the bank in Georgia and a third of the bank in Florida, and certainly. Have some very good demographics going there, but to but to quote Hoppy, you know he's always out there looking for pound puppies, and what that means is you know what I just said earlier, you know smaller banks that might have you know some some trouble, whether it's trouble with you know treasury securities or uh, technology deficits, you know Hoppy has been very good at buying these small banks and consolidating and creating value for his own shareholders. Yeah, not, no time to get to the third one, but I'll just say it. I got it wrong. It's not Shreveport. It's Red Stick, Baton Rouge-based business first bank shares, BFST. Anton, we'll get you back on again soon because this amazing run in regionals, I got to imagine your phone has been, uh, as the kids say, blowing up. Anton, thank you. Thank you. Great to see you. All right, appreciate it. All right, some new names there for you heading into the new year, folks. All right, coming up. 
Is the clock ticking on parts of the Apple Watch? A story about the watch you got to hear next. All right, welcome back. we got a bonus TNT for you tonight. Apple is planning a major software workaround after a patent battle led the company to halt sales of its newest Apple Watch models. That is set to go into effect later on this week. Medical device company Massimo claims it owns the blood oxygen measuring technology used in the Apple Watch. Joining us now to talk more about it, Wall Street Journal tech columnist and CBC contributor Joanna Stark. Joanna, what, what exactly is this patent fight? It seems like kind of a big deal. Yeah, this is a, a fight over a sensor and a sensor in the Apple Watch, the Series 9 and the Ultra, that measure that measures blood oxygen level. And so this is a sensor Apple has had for a couple of years now. And this company, Massimo, claims that Apple has, has violated some of its patents. Apple also saying that that company is violated. So there, there's a big fight back and forth around patents here. And now the deadline for this, this ban really goes into effect December 25th big old Christmas day. And this now seems to be a waiting game. We know that there are a couple of different options Apple could take here. One is that Biden would uh, veto this. And so, okay, there would be no issue and and Apple could keep these on on store shelves. Two would be that Apple here goes and and negotiates with Massimo and, and there's some settlement. And then three, that Apple issues some sort of software update to get around this patent dispute. And these watches are fine. Massimo, by the way, a public company, MASI, and had a good day today, up about 3% and up again after hours. Uh, Is Apple just then, like, until this was resolved, are they choosing to pull the watches that have the oxygen sensor, or are they, like, not allowed to sell it right now? Well, they are until this deadline. So today they've come out with this announcement saying, "Okay, well, then basically by this when if this deadline goes through, we will have to pull these from from store shelves and from online orders, which is a good tactic as well, right? It's a few days before Christmas. People, if you need to get your new Apple Watches and these are the higher-end models, well, hey, go out and get them right now. It's going to be a if you if you want the Apple Watch with this blood oxygen monitor thing on it and we all by the way needed this or wanted this when COVID hit, rushing to buy those things on our fingertips, like you're no, you don't care who owns the patent. You just want the watch. It's going to be like a Cabbage Patch Kids moment for these things. Uh, yeah, I mean that would be a great myself. thing for Apple. I'm not. Yeah, I, I picked up on it, but I, yeah, I don't think that so many people out there are yearning for this type of, uh, or that people are yearning for this type of medical device and and this type of health benefit. But they're not running out to get that specific uh, feature, right? This is Christmas time. People want to get the latest and greatest Apple Watch. And these happen to be the two high-end models, the two best models out there. And so, look, if they were pulled from shelves now, there would be a fix that would eventually be able to make this work. And according to the reporting out from Mm -hmm. Bloomberg right now, that is what Apple's working on. But I believe they've also sort of thinking here, okay, well, if, if Biden does veto it, well, then we'll keep it on store shelves and it'll be fine. All this really goes to say is that Apple is not going to keep these off shelves for a long time. This is some of their best cutting edge technology. And these are some of the models that sell the best. Well, and listen, Massimo, maybe the CEO wants to come on this program because me thinks they have a chance to profit doth mightily. Joanna Stern, Wall Street Journal. Always appreciated, Joanna. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Do you know what happened 14 years ago today? The highest grossing movie of all time. Hit the big screen. (laughs) 
Of course, that was Avatar, and Avatar 2 did pretty well, and Avatar 3 apparently is on track to go out as well. Avatar, giant blue people flying around. That's it for us tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. Be well. Go Eagles. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.